0: Noah, I think that the narrative that you've developed for this business of treasure hunting has changed the business. It's changed how I look at it, and I think it's made it easier for you to explain the business to other people and to find meaning in it yourself.
1: This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf and I'm here with my co-host, Lloyd Graff. Today, we're going to talk about our family business, treasure hunting. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graph Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.g-r-a-f-f-p-i-n-k-e-r-t.com. How you doing, Lloyd?
0: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here interviewing you. Great. Noah? How long have you been working at Graf Pinkert, and why are you working at Graf Pinkert?
1: Wow, you're uh, hitting the hard questions right away. No, it's not a hard question. I've been working at Graf Pinkert officially since 2011. Jesus, that's seven years. Before that, I was working at Today's Machining World, editing with the magazine. Basically, once the magazine went solely online... I moved over to Graf Pinkert because it was a lot less commitment when uh, it wasn't in print. And I wanted a change. I wanted some movement in my life. I wanted to try something else, and it seemed interesting.
0: Has it been interesting?
1: Yeah, it, it has been interesting. Uh, I've really enjoyed the travel. I've enjoyed, as with the magazine, well, one of the best parts has been working with you, Dad. I've learned quite a bit. I like to call the machinery business the treasure hunting business, as opposed to a business where we buy gross-looking iron that nobody wants and peddle it to other people. I I like to think of it, you know, it sort of romanticizes it. And as you say, Dad, uh, also I like to call it turning shit into gold. It really is a magical process, sort of alchemy in a way this idea of taking a piece of equipment, an object that for some reason somebody didn't want. It's interesting, mind-boggling sometimes that we're able to have a business doing this.
0: No, I think that the narrative that you've developed for this business of treasure hunting has changed the business. It's changed how I look at it, and I think it's made it easier for you to explain the business to other people and to find meaning in it yourself.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's always been sort of a treasure hunting business, but historically we've been more into buying old Wickmans, old Acmes, you know, machines that were washed up and, you know, again, literally turning shit into gold, rebuilding, providing service for people, and... You know, that's an okay business too, but as time's gone on, some of that equipment has gone obsolete, uh, the mechanical machines, and as you get into the CNC machines, it's not exactly something you want to work on, and it's more about finding something and selling something and not necessarily messing with it. Maybe you just clean it up a little bit. It's more just about finding stuff than actually operating on the patient.
0: Do you feel like you understand how the machines work?
1: To some extent, yes. I think I understand how multi-spindles work better than other people, better than the average Joe, and better than a lot of other machinery dealers. I think I need to work on uh, my knowledge of some of the other types of machines, uh, the other CNC machines that everybody says are so simple compared to the multi-spindles, but it's kind of like... you know, somebody who speaks Chinese and they have to learn English, which seems like it should be in a simpler language, but it's still a different language. You have to put in the time. Do I understand how the machines work? Yeah. I, I'd i give myself a, a B, maybe a B- minus uh-huh. as far as how they work. I think I know more about is finding...
0: That a, is that a big detriment for you?
1: It would be a lot better if I did, but... You know, I'm decent now at understanding the values when I look at something as far as what to buy it for, what to sell it for. I I remember when I started back in 2011, asking you guys, you and Rex and the other people working here, I remember asking you, how do you know it's worth that? What makes you think it's worth that? Why, Why shouldn't we ask for more money? Why shouldn't we offer less money? It just seemed sort of a alchemy thing. I mean, we always, we still debate prices a lot. You know, I've learned a lot about finding the flaws in machines. I'd say Rex, you know, our coworker who really knows the machines well, he's more technical than us. He is one of the best people I know in the world at finding what's wrong with a machine, which is very important when you're trying to negotiate with somebody, when you're trying to find out, if something is flawed. Sometimes, as, as you say, Dad, whether it's the machinery business or, or stocks or lots of things, sometimes you can know too much. Sometimes you can know so much that you don't ask enough for a machine or you, you don't think that something is worth what it's worth. You know more about these machines than I do. You find a certain specific type and and you say, oh, it, no, it doesn't have this attachment, or it doesn't have this or that. But when we buy a machine that we don't know as much about, sometimes we lose our shirt, but sometimes we are more bold and it pays off. Or sometimes we see our competitors and, say, we see auctioneers, for instance, and they buy a whole bunch of equipment, and, you know, as they say, they have a sixth sense about this equipment. And it often pays off for them where we're we're like looking at the equipment and we're like, well, I don't know about this or that or this. And sometimes uh, that sixth sense even makes more sense or more money than your actual knowledge.
0: Is that part of the romance of the business or is it something that befuddles you and makes you anxious?
1: As you said in your interview, when you were, say, my age and you were working with grandpa, he was writing the checks, so you weren't feeling so anxious about doing a deal, whether you are going to make money or lose money. You feel the angst, the pain, when we lose money uh, on a deal. I feel bad about it, I feel like we sort of failed, but for you it's like it's a pass-through business. It's your own money. So maybe I'm a little less nervous about things.
0: I know some days I feel like I know what I'm doing, and other days I feel like I'm going to the casino. When things are going poorly, I think that my knowledge is totally suspect and my instincts are incorrect. When things are going well, the tendency is to think that uh, you're brilliant and (laughs) you totally have uh, psyched out the market.
1: Unfortunately, what the market is one week, maybe next week or the next month, it's it's totally different.
0: It's it's such a fascinating business, though, because we're dealing in obscure, esoteric machines with a very thin market.
1: Yeah, it's such low volume. I mean, how many machines do you think we sell a year? People ask me that all the time. I never, I, I lose count. But I mean, in a month, we may sell three machines. We may sell five machines, we may sell one machine. But if Uh, it's the right machine...
0: Yeah, over the course of the year, uh, maybe 60, maybe 80 in a good year. But actually, that doesn't really matter anymore. What matters to me is, can we turn the money? Can we make money at the end of the month? Mm -hmm. Of course, do we have satisfied customers? Do we have a workplace that... Is a happy place? Is it something that I get enjoyment from? Am I using my creativity? These are the things that I use to evaluate the business. And not, how
1: successful you are at the time.
0: Yeah. Not just how many machines did we sell, what was our volume. I mean, that's what banks think of. I try to think beyond what the bank thinks of. When the bank is dominating what I'm thinking about, it means I'm on the defensive. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you're trying to play their game, satisfy them. And the ideal was for you to satisfy yourself or for them to try to satisfy you.
0: Yes, and to satisfy your customers. And uh, for me to have fun and for me to have fun means using my creativity. And I think that you use your creativity in a lot of different ways and ways that I don't necessarily uh, use mine.
1: What ways do you think I use my creativity?
0: I think in uh, your marketing efforts, in your unrelenting desire to get the negotiating process going successfully.
1: Yeah, well, that's become a fascination of late. I don't know if I'd consider that creativity, but it is critical thinking. And yeah, that's been a lot of fun, studying negotiation. I've listened to a lot of books recently. You know, it's been interesting to work on it with you and Rex and and to see you rethink some of the ways you've approached it actually I have to say I'm pretty impressed that you know you've done it a certain way for 50 years not to mention it's a lot harder for you because it's your money you know that you've been able to at least try some of the different methods the stuff doesn't come instantly it's it's like practicing some kind of art.
0: Have you ever been able to successfully explain to somebody outside of the business what you do?
1: Yeah, I think other people have gotten the gist of it. You explain the business to most people, and they may find it sort of interesting. Many people are a little baffled. Many people... Snicker when you tell them you sell screw machines, and then once in a while you tell somebody, and they're just totally fascinated, or at least they they act fascinated by this these different machines and maybe how they work technically, maybe just this idea of how you you know the details of who wants what and you know where in the world to find a certain machine, and you know I, I think certain people do really appreciate it.
0: When you were growing up now, it, did you have any feel for what Graf Pinkerton Company did?
1: Not particularly. Yeah, at one point I saw you you bought machines that uh, needed a lot of work, and you rebuilt them and sold them. I didn't really see much of the treasure hunting. I didn't really see much of the marketing or the methods. It was sort of just buy low, sell high fix these machines. It always seemed like a great business. You were traveling everywhere. Money wasn't much of an issue. It seemed like a good trade. But I remember in sixth grade, people would ask me, what does your parents do? What do, you, what do your parents do? I remember somebody else in the class said, oh, my dad's a doorman. I was like, okay, that's, that's very concrete. And I said, my dad's a businessman. <laughs> so I guess at that point, that was the extent of my knowledge. You know, eventually started working in the summer, sort of doing tasks like data entry, packing spare parts. And maybe you'd talk about it, you know, bring me in to talk about a deal for a minute. But it probably wasn't until I was at today's machining world, probably when I graduated college, that I understood a little bit more. It's a simple concept. Buy low, sell high, buy stuff that people don't know what it's worth. And... Um, sell it to somebody else that needs it. It is pretty simple when you break it down that way. It's just, as you say, it's your main capital is your knowledge.
0: How does your work with uh, today's machining world fit in with Graf Pinkert and with your life?
1: You know, I have a humanities background, and I sort of like to write, I, I like the finished product. I like producing something that people enjoy and maybe learn from, or you know, find fun to read. I find writing a painful exercise. Uh, it always has taken me three times as long as anybody else to produce something, but it's satisfying. I, I also I like editing your stuff. That's kind of become my thing, being a behind the scenes editor. I wish I could get myself to produce more things, but I have a lot of other activities outside of the business, extracurriculars, if you will, and other creative projects I work on. But today's machining world definitely is important to me to shake it up, to have at least some sort of uh, different creative outlet outside of uh, buying and selling machines. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: How do you feel about it?
0: Well, it's given me the opportunity to write to achieve uh, a notoriety and a brand and a recognition uh, in the industry. It's given me uh, an outlet for creativity. The, the magazine was something that I always had the urge to do. In retrospect, I see the downside has certainly been uh, that it's uh, taken me away from the primary money-making quest in the machine tool business. It also uh, sowed the seeds, perhaps, of the breakup uh, of the partnership with my brother. But it's had a lot of other upside, particularly being uh, the lure to some degree for you coming into the business and well, certainly the uh, the reach that we've gotten as far as our clientele and worldwide recognition goes all
1: right well question to you do you think that do you think if you didn't have the blog you would have made more money
0: yes Uh, because i think that i would have uh, been more committed to uh, the machine tool business particularly in the decade uh, between 2000 and 2010
1: Right that was when you were working the hardest but yeah. would you have been happy if you didn't
0: have that I uh, know I think that that has given me great joy I remember you know when I was uh, preparing for the uh, open heart surgery I was thinking about today's machining world which is interesting they say uh, people don't think about money when they're on their deathbed well I wasn't really thinking about the money I was thinking about what I had built with today's machining world, and I was thinking about hoping that if I didn't get through the open-heart surgery, that you would carry it on. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about that?
1: Uh, the idea of me carrying it on?
0: Yeah, and particularly uh, at that moment. Do you have any idea, or do you have any memory of it?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course. I remember you, you wrote it on a piece of paper, because you couldn't talk, and you said that I want you to have the magazine, have this business. I have thought about that, what it would be like. or I think maybe I was thinking about it then, if you didn't make it. Although I, I really did think you were going to make it through that whole thing. But I did and do think about the idea of writing my own blog, trying to continue what you do and have done. I mean, I think I have enough talent that I might be able to do something. I mean, it would definitely be different, and people would probably still enjoy reading it. But I don't know. I think it would just—it would have to be something different. Would, well, yeah.
0: I think you'll thrive with the podcasts. That's what
1: I'm thinking. I'm thinking that these podcasts are going to be my outlet, particularly if they can get some traction. I think once we get a few under our belt. It's going to start going faster. Yeah, this is something that could be really special. But I think it really has to be coupled with writing. I think the most successful podcasts online, and those are combined with writing, be be it James Altucher or um, a lot of those NPR podcasts.
0: Mm -hmm. Gladwell.
1: Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, I don't know if he writes blogs specifically about his podcast, but you know, that's why he's known. I guess the most popular podcasts are people that have written books or have done other things. You know, they've built their own brand. Well
0: but that's that's what I've tried to do with today's machining world and with the blog is to build my own brand.
1: It's amazing. You know, it's been around for what, eighteen years? That's yeah. that's a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it is. I remember after the open heart surgery. It was what I really wanted to do. I really wanted to get going and prove to myself that I could do the blog again, that I wasn't disabled, that I, uh, my mind hadn't been affected by 13 days on uh, a
1: respirator. How did you feel when you decided uh, you just wanted to take the blog online?
0: Well, that was really your doing. Uh, really? To some degree. I I mean, mean, it was a
1: transition. We started doing it online and print at the same time. It was a transition. Yeah,
0: but you pointed out that trying to do the uh, print magazine was, A, just a a, uh, patent to lose money, and B, it was exhausting, and the blog was what I cared about, and it was what... uh, The column was what people were interested in, right? And it was something more current
1: because you were you wanted that sort of current with the Swarf. You wanted a current gossip column, if you will. Yeah, and I I think it's been a it was the right decision. I don't think
0: there's no doubt it was. I don't think the
1: magazine could have lasted in print. Sure, you could have limped along for a little longer, but when you look at the big institutional publications, and they're holding on for dear life, too. So, I mean, if they can't make it, why should we try to struggle against the tide when there's other opportunities?
0: Totally agree. It seems obvious today. Yeah,
1: fortunately, we we got out, you know, a little bit before things would have forced us out for various things that were pulling at us.
0: If you had have a child would you want that child uh, to work with you
1: i mean i think it's a really cool thing when child and their father get to work together i'm 38 right now so even if i did have a child like right away i'm about to get married and e- even if i had a child right away like by the time that child was 22 23 graduated college would i be 70 60 60 that's not too horrible, but uh, <laughs> who knows? Who knows what the machinery business is going to be like? Sure. What or what I'll be doing? Um, I remember when I graduated college, we had this great speaker. I believe his name was his last name was Abrams. He was one of the writers for the uh, airplane movie, the Naked Gun movie. He was an alum at Wisconsin, uh, my alma mater, and he said, my number one piece of advice for all of you guys is to not buy expensive furniture because you're going to be moving around a lot. You're going to have different jobs. Don't expect to get out of college and have the same exact job all your life. Uh, That's probably not going to happen. I always thought that was very profound. I've worked in the same place for 13 years now, which is mind-boggling. I mean, not a, not doing the same thing, but still, it's a long time.
0: Well, I can say that it's been a fantastic experience for me to work with you because I continue to learn from you every day. Uh, I continue to learn from you. You are,
1: if not the smartest person I know, one of the smartest people I know. We don't always agree on everything, but it really is amazing how well we connect. You have an idea, I don't necessarily agree with it, and we're able to come to a consensus on basically everything. Same thing, if I have an idea and you're not too crazy about it. Generally, in the end, we can talk about it, not very long either, and we'll come to an understanding, and even if maybe one person doesn't totally think it's true, isn't 100% behind it, we can at least go with it and try it. And that's really an amazing thing with anybody, let alone your father. Uh, I mean, I guess it sort of makes sense in a way that we have similar genes. So, you know, that contributes some to us agreeing on things. But, you know, you hear all the time about how difficult it is to work with a family member. Uh, You may come from the same place, but sure doesn't mean that you think the same way.
0: Well... I don't want you to think the same way as me.
1: Right, that that's wouldn't...
0: That's no fun. Uh, and, impossible either. Also, Yeah, you know. and uh, of course, that's why I learn from you, because you don't think the same way as I do about a lot of stuff.
1: But and, I, like your, I like your style and your approach. You have an open mind, you're trying to make things fun, you're trying to be introspective, you get a joy out of trying very hard, yet you also definitely have the ability to to relax
0: as well. I'm good at that as well. Maybe too good at that. (laughs) I love your enthusiasm. That's what makes coming to work so much fun for me, is to play off of your enthusiasm. And as we've talked about, I may think about things too seriously, too analytically. And when I come to work and I bounce ideas off of you you challenge me and that's a great thing because lots of times I ask myself well maybe he is right <laughs> <laughs> maybe he is right maybe what I've thought and what I planned for the last uh, several hours or uh, thought through is is really invalid
1: right, same thing with me I'll, I'll think you're totally wrong about something, and maybe agree with the entire office that we don't agree uh, with something you're doing, but you stick to your guns, and of course you are the boss, so in the end, you are allowed to uh, make the executive decision, and very often we all go, oh, yeah, maybe he was right. Maybe it wasn't such a (laughs) stupid idea.
0: (laughs) Well, this has been fun, and I hope we get a chance to do this a lot more often. Uh, The podcast? uh, Work together? Work together, talk about stuff, bounce ideas off one another, listen to one another.
1: You're a good listener. At least with me, you're a good listener. I don't know what other people think, but uh, you're very good at listening to me.
0: One thing I've observed is bosses who are not good listeners are usually bad bosses. Also... I certainly don't think that I know all the answers, so (laughs) I'm trying to find out from other people what a better answer might be. Mm -hmm. And since you're the person that I have the most contact with, I'm constantly probing you for better answers than the ones that I have. Well, that's flattering. It isn't meant to be flattering, it's the truth.
1: I mean, I, I probably feel the same way.
0: One of the neat things about doing this is that it's a way to develop a personal narrative and a personal history that most people don't get an opportunity to do. It's also a chance to put it into the record, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, like the interview that you did, supposedly, with me, was really a chance for me...
1: Supposedly?
0: Well, I mean, because I thought it was a mutual interview. This is an opportunity for you and I, to talk about where we are at a given moment in May 2018. And you just never know how many times you get a chance to do that.
1: That's true. That's true. And, you know, as we'll talk about another time, I have experience in video production. That was one of my passions. Still is a passion, but, you know, that's one of the things I've always liked about that. It's sort of you you make something and it sort of immortalizes it. This takes less production time. Not that it's necessarily that easy, but this is easier to do constant work, whereas video either takes forever or takes a lot of people to yeah. keep it going. So that you know, that's one of the things I'm really looking forward to with the podcast, that we can constantly churn stuff out, like the blog, maybe every week, maybe every week and a half. You have to, otherwise uh, we're going to lose momentum,
0: but I... I yeah. People forget about you. And that's one of the beautiful things about doing a public blog. It forces you to write. Mm-hmm. Especially one where you have advertisers. You just can't... You have to show up.
1: Right. If you didn't have advertisers, sometimes when you just
0: you just didn't... The tendency would be to fall into lethargy. Yeah. And yeah, same with the business. If you didn't have a payroll, if there was no urgency, uh eh, Make a deal today, maybe we don't make it, maybe we don't make uh, the nut for May, maybe we do.
1: That would be kind of nice, though, too, if you just had so much money that it was a hobby.
0: No, business should not be a hobby. When you lose a sense of urgency, you lose the momentum, you lose some of the joy because uh, uh, you're not competing hard, you're not trying your utmost. you got to be in the game, I think. If it's a hobby... You're not really in the game.
1: Right. It's okay. You can already be filthy rich and be playing the game still. Then it often comes down to even more than just money. It's more just succeeding.
0: Right. I mean, for me, the business is way more than money. It's creativity. It's the um, people I work with. It's it's so much more than just money.
1: Hey, everybody. First, we just want to say thank you to all of the people listening to this podcast. You guys are the hip folks, the early adopters. You make this thing worth doing. But it would be really great if you could subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And even better, give us a rating. It'll just take a second and it'll help other people discover it. Talk to you next week.